Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. What is up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Today, we are on episode 157. Really do appreciate you being here. Appreciate you listening. Hey, if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Really glad you're here. If you've uh, been listening since episode one, also really glad you're here. Appreciate you uh, sticking around, hanging out with us. Hey, a couple quick favors to ask of you. Right? Hey, one... Would you do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast? If you haven't already, I don't want you to miss a single episode. We put out these episodes every single week. We don't want you to miss one. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and in iTunes or whatever a podcast app that you use. Also, would you do us a favor and just leave us a rating and review? That, that just helps us out. It helps other people to find the show. And, and we just want to make sure that we are creating something that is worth listening to. So give us your honest feedback there and uh, let us know how we can continue to help serve you in your speaking business. All right, let's get right into it. Today, we are talking with my friend, Laura Gassner-Odding, and uh, Laura is, uh, is actually a relatively new speaker. Uh, so we talked through, uh, this is a great conversation. I think you're really going to dig this. We talked through actually how one of her first big talks was at TEDx presentation. So we, we talked through how that kind of came to be. She had a little brain fart in the midst of it. I think you're going to enjoy that story. We also talk about how she differentiates herself from other speakers on uh, what would appear to be a, a, a relatively common topic. We talk about how to silence that voice in your head as a speaker, how to overcome the imposter syndrome. This is something that I hear from speakers frequently that they're going, you know, who am I to be up on stage? Who am I to have the microphone? What if the audience knows more about this subject or topic than I do. So we talked through how to handle that with Laura. We also talked through that most speakers are actually very introverted and why that that's not a bad thing. So this is something that kind of comes up toward the tail end of the conversation that if you feel like, hey, in order to be a speaker, I've got to be some raging extrovert. That is generally not the case. In fact, uh, we, we discussed that most speakers we know are actually very introverted. So a lot of good stuff there as well. So let's get right into it. Again, this is uh, Laura Gassner Odding. You can check her stuff out over at lauragassnerodding.com. That is L-A-U-R-A-G-A-S-S-N-E-R-O-T-T-I-N-G, lauragassnerodding.com. All right, here we go. Enjoy. What is up, my friends? Hey, today we're hanging out with Laura Gassner-Odding from, from Boston, who's been a, what she would dub as an accidental speaker, and been speaking uh, recently and making the rounds, and has a wide range of experience that we're going to cover and talk about today. So, Laura, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing delightful. Thanks for uh, making the time to hang out with us. So, let's start with this. Why don't you give us kind of a quick snapshot of how speaking fits into your business today? How much speaking are you doing? Who are you speaking to? And then we'll kind of backtrack and uh, figure out how you got to this point. Yeah. So, I am speaking as much as I can today. I'm getting paid as many times as I can for it and as much as I possibly can, which is all this huge adventure and mostly trying to do like two to three big gigs in the spring and two to three big gigs in the fall and then spend the summer and the winter really 
trying to figure out my next talk and the next thing that I think about. Because unlike some speakers who get up there and they speak every week and they do the same keynote three, four times a week, every week, I can't do that. I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I'm always ready for the next thing. I always want to think about the next thing. And I, once I've mastered one talk, I'm kind of bored of it and I don't want to do it over and over again. And so I'm trying to figure out how do I get the core message across that I want to discuss and also keep it fresh for me each time. And so I mostly speak about making change in the world, solving big problems, social impact, and also within that, finding your leadership voice to figure out exactly what your role is and what the levers are that you can pull personally and professionally to actually make this big change in the world. And so for me, that involves both speaking and also coaching on the side. And now I'm trying to do a little bit of both where I actually do my talks and then midway through, I actually bring people up and I do some live coaching on stage as well, which allows me to talk about the same stuff and get the same message across, but also have it be super fresh and new each time you know what's going to come up on stage. Right. Right. Yeah. Anytime you invite someone on stage or you give someone else the microphone, it is uh, you're you're walking a tightrope, which can be uh, extremely uh, exciting and exhilarating and also very uh, intimidating and daunting. So I'm curious uh, on topics like making a change, leadership, some of those big, broad topics, are you focusing on a specific group of people or niche of people? Or is it just kind of, hey, this is related to everybody. So we try to just spread the net as far and wide as possible. What does that kind of look like for you? Well, Martin Luther King said that everyone is great because everyone can serve. And I believe that deep in my core. And I think we all have a role to play in making the world a better place. And we all have a responsibility in making the world a better place. So I am kind of an equal opportunity service slut. I will just talk to anybody (laughs) at any time who believes that there is something that they can do to improve the lives of others around them. And I think it is not difficult for any of us to find somebody whose life we can make better, and by doing so, make our own life better in the process. When I was 21 years old, I found myself standing in a small campaign office in Gainesville, Florida, and I was dragged there by a boy that I should not have been dating, who had fundamentally terrific tastes in two things. The first being girlfriends, obviously, and the second being um, unknown presidential hopefuls from tiny southern states with negligible electoral college prowess. And I dragged into that office muttering, Governor who, from where? Arkansas? Like, not a chance in hell. And in that office was Bill Clinton. And he was talking about this idea that there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he offered as a policy proposal this idea of service, of community service in exchange for college tuition. And like a lightning bolt, I realized in that moment, this has to happen. And I dropped out of law school and I joined the campaign. And ever since, I have just been on this campaign to reach out to people and help them figure out how to use their gifts and their talents to make the world a better place. And that ended up with me working in the White House in the office that created AmeriCorps, Wow, which is pretty cool, super fun, a heady, romantic, amazing thing to do when you're all of 22 years old. Yeah. And I walked out of that office four years later, realizing that I was both too old to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium floors, and also too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So I went to go talk to a headhunter so I could figure out how to hide out in the nonprofit sector for four years and then come back and do something big on the Gore campaign. And the headhunter said, oh, you don't want to do that. You should come work for me. And I thought, great, the job's in Boston. And the guy, different guy that I'm dating now, is going to end up in Boston. And I don't really know what the job is, but it's geographically 
ideal. So yeah, I'll take the job. What do you do? And I ended up becoming a headhunter and I ended up doing executive search for nonprofit organizations, for social mission-based organizations for 20 years. Had the greatest time ever. Five years into it, had a sort of moment of rage where I realized I could do it better and smarter and faster and with more authenticity and integrity. And I just decided to start my own thing. And I did. I ran that company for 15 years and I sold it to my team a couple of years ago. And the rest is history. It's been super fun, but I got this amazing experience over the course of 20 years where I got to listen to people tell me their stories and I got to understand what really makes a leader and what makes somebody effective in the things that they do in terms of how they move audiences and how they move staff, how they move funders. And I think that's all kind of boiled into what it is that I talk about today. Yeah. I'm curious then when you were making that transition into starting to speak, was it something that you were proactively saying, I want to be a speaker, what do I need to do? Or was it where you had some random opportunities that were falling into your lap? Or how did you make the transition from I'm in the nonprofit, the government sector, and now all of a sudden I'm starting to speak more? How did that transition begin to take place? This is sort of a random story, but in 2012, I ran the Boston Marathon for charity because I'm very slow, but I'm very stubborn. And um, you got to be pretty fast to qualify for Boston. Yeah. So I had run my first mile of my entire life about a year prior. So this will be a theme that's going to emerge, right? I don't do something. I decide I'm going to do it. I put 110% into it. And all of a sudden, this is the thing that I do, right? right, right, right. <laughs> I decided to start doing speaking. Here I am. But I, I decided I was going to run the Boston Marathon. It was a midlife crisis of, of epic proportions. And in that marathon, that charitable marathon training group was a woman, you know, by the name of Tamsin Webster. Mm -hmm. Now, my son at the time, who's nine years old, was doing a blog about fashion and food and life called Junior Sartorialist. And I would post things on Facebook because, you know, like my grandma wanted to see them. And one day Tamsin comes running up next to me and she's like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but in my avocation, I'm the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge. And... Do you think you and your son would like to do a TEDx talk about how he found his voice and what that blog is all about? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to do a TEDx talk. I'm going to have great. (laughs) I came home and I turned to my nine-year-old and I was like, hey, so this woman asked me if you'd like to, um, you and I, we could do a TEDx talk about how you found your voice. And my little sassy nine-year-old looks at me and says, well, mom, I mean, if it's all about how I found my voice, why would you be on stage with me? (laughs) Touche. Yeah. So the little bastard kicks me off the stage before I'm even on the stage. He proceeds to do this fantastic TEDx talk. I get to know Tamsin fairly well in the process. Fast forward several years later, I sell my company. I start blogging just about like life lessons and things that I've done. And I write a blog post about the myth of self-importance, about how we all decide that we are the solution to every problem. And Tamsin calls me up and says, So I saw your blog post and I think you should apply to maybe do a TEDx because it's a really good idea. And at the time I'm driving and I'm being a really good mom. And so I'm answering the phone on speakerphone and my older son is sitting next to me, hears this conversation and hears me say, no way would I do that. I am an accidental CEO. I'm a total introvert. I have no interest in getting up on stage and doing that. No, no thanks, but no thanks. And I hang up and my son turns to me and says, so mom, don't you always tell me that, you know, you should do things that scare you? And don't you always tell me that if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you? And don't you always tell me that life starts (laughs) on the other side of the fear? And I turned to him and I said, 
ah! <laughs> and a few expletives came out of my mouth. And I said, so I guess I have to do this, huh? And he's like, yep. So score one for being a good mom. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That backfired. And I apply and I do it. I get chosen. I do it. And there I am standing in front of 2,600 people at the Boston Opera House in this gorgeous, beautiful, you know, gilded walls and great chandeliers for like the, the opera and the ballet perform. And I'm out there and it's 12 minutes without notes, without a net, me with the little, you know, countryman Mike right. in like a dress. And I am hoping I'm not going to crap my pants right. and I'm hoping right. I'm going to remember everything I'm supposed to say. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done professionally. I've dropped it and nowhere into the White House and I started my own business and I, you know, sold it. I mean, I did a lot of things that were scary, but this was the scariest thing I ever did. Wow. Wow. And then I became a speaker. That was it. That was my first big, I, over the course of running my company for 15 years, I did a lot of workshops and sort of keynotes about professional stuff, but I never performed a keynote in this way. So that TEDx Cambridge was my first big real talk. That's crazy. Very cool. All right. So you go from there to, so you come off stage. I mean, it sounds like it went well. Are you thinking, oh, that was fun. That was a, a once in a lifetime experience. That's all it was. Let's leave it at there. Or are you thinking, when can I do that again? Like where, where do you go from that point forward? Mostly I came off stage and I was thinking, oh, thank God I can eat the lasagna that's backstage because <laughs> I was so afraid that I would eat it before I get it all over myself or I would vomit it all over the stage. But, you know, I came off the stage and, and, and it, it went okay. It was a 12 minute talk. I think I killed it for like 11 and a half minutes. And then I kind of death spiraled in this moment where I absolutely forgot what I was going to say next. And if you watch the video, there's this moment where I sort of look to the side and you can see that I really have no idea. It was like that Admiral Stockdale moment when the debate against, um, you know, with with Mike Dukakis, when he was like, where am I? Who am I? I And I just had that moment, but, but I, I paused and I breathed and I realized that there is nothing louder than the deafening silence of 2,600 people waiting for you to say your next line. It's like the loudest sound on earth and then breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out. And I realized, oh, I'm stage right, which means I'm talking about the problems. And over there on stage left is where I talk about solutions. So I must have to go talk about solutions next. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. My next line. Right. But it was in the learning about the craft of blocking the stage through your talk and and knowing that if you're in one place you're mapped to this content that means you go to the other place and you're mapped to that one but i found this moment of oh this is how a professional acts right so i i I pulled it back in i finished the talk and i got off stage and the first thing i thought was i forgot that line like i forgot the one major line that kind of gave the whole thing a little bit of context and Every night for the next three weeks, I woke up in the middle of the night reciting in my brain that part of the talk where I knew that I forgot that thing. I couldn't let it go. And I saw Scott Stratton uh, about a month later and I asked him what he does. If he's, if you like, how does he, how do you get rid of that? And he's like, you don't, it just lives with you until you get on the stage next. Yeah. And I realized I better get my ass on another stage or I'm going to like wake up every night, like Groundhog Day for the rest of my life, (laughs) the same line. So I got a phone call where I got asked to keynote the nonprofit symposium of Idaho. Okay. Huge. 
huge. They were going to pay me actual dollars and they were going to fly me out there to Boise and put me up. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I hired Tamsin. She actually helped me craft this 12 minute TEDx into like a 45 minute keynote from which I figured I'd write a book and do a whole bunch of other things. And I went out there and I did it. And, and there was a moment where I said a line, it was a laugh line in the audience actually laughed. And I was like, Oh, it worked. <laughs> oh, I like that. I want more of that. And suddenly it became addictive. Yeah. Like I, I have this ability to pull these strings and I can move the audience. And when I want them to laugh, they laugh. And when I want them to cry, they cry. And the power that you have is so incredibly audaciously exciting Mm -hmm. if you're somebody who enjoys that sort of thing and the ability to move people became like a drug instantaneously and the fact that somebody was willing to pay me to do it was like comical you know like comical and I came home from that and I turned to my husband and I said I can't believe somebody just paid me that much money for 40 minutes of work and he said no Laura they paid you that much money for 25 years and 40 minutes of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's the difference between price and value, right? Right there. Right. And suddenly I had this frame of, I can do this. This, this is actually a career choice. I mean, this is a career choice. This yeah. is actually a career choice. And people will pay me money to do it only if I tell them that I'm worth money to do it. Yeah. So I built it. I had somebody help build a little website for me. We made a little speaker reel and I looked like super legit in it. And I put on my on my website that I, you know, get paid ten to fifteen thousand dollars talk. And then suddenly people started calling me and asking me and telling me that that was their budget. Like as if of course it was. So I was like the Wizard of Oz of speakers. The good news is that I had 25 years of substance to back up what I was saying, right? So it all worked out. But it, it was almost like the audacity of telling somebody that you were a speaker made me a speaker. Yeah. Yeah. How much of that do you think was just mental in your head, just kind of wrapping your mind around the that validation or that stamp that you're placing on yourself that, yes, I am a speaker and I do have something valuable to say and I can help people and I am comfortable charging this? Because I think it's a big mindset shift for a lot of speakers of, I can do a few of these little gigs here and there, but to really feel ownership of that title that I am a speaker and not just something I'm just going to say or put on a bio just for the heck of it. Cause I did that one thing years ago, but to feel like, no, no, no like this is a, a key piece of what it is that I do. How much of that did that cause you to just make that mental shift or how did you make that mental shift into saying, no, no, I'm a speaker and I'm proud of it. And, and here's the value that I can bring to your audience. So it's funny that you say that because for the last six months, people have been asking me what I do for a living. And I, at the end of the day, the speaking that I do is motivational, right? It's inspirational, but I can't bring myself to say I am a motivational speaker because it just sounds like, it just sounds like, like selling snake oil. And so I was actually just at a wedding this weekend and I was asked by the grooms to give a toast. And I got up and I gave my toast and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, that was amazing. You should be a motivational speaker. And I said, actually, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the first time I actually owned up to it. But I've been having a little bit of a hard time telling people that I am a speaker. Like when they ask me what I do for a living, it just feels not real. 
But there is a huge amount of imposter syndrome that I think that goes into it. I mean, even if you are like the best-selling author of this or the world-renowned expert of that, there's always, you don't know who's in the audience, right? You have 2,600 people or 10,000 people or 60 people, and you have no idea if like the world's greatest expert on this thing is in the audience. And if you say it wrong, they're going to call you out. Like there's a little bit of, you just don't know. It's It's a little bit of not having a net. And I've been thinking recently that there's in my mind, like a little bit of a grid where in one corner, there's speaking and workshops. And in the other opposite corner is performance and keynotes. And when you're speaking a workshop, you're using slides and you're conveying information, but you're just kind of, it's sort of rote and it's stuff that you know, and it's a little bit dry. And then when you perform a keynote, the idea behind a workshop is to relay information and to teach. And the idea behind a keynote is to maybe relay information and teach, but it's also to move your audience, right? It's to move them. And what I would do talking through workshops, there was always a tape in the back of my head. Like, should you really be up here? Did you nail that line? Why is that guy looking at his phone? Is he tweeting what you're saying because it's so smart? Or is he like surfing Facebook because he's bored? Why is that woman looking at you so weird? Why did that person get up to leave? Like, Mm. you know, there's all this stuff in the back of your head. So while you're speaking, you've also got the voice, like your peanut gal. And it's just like, it's middle school in the back of your head, just telling you all the things are wrong. And then when you're performing a keynote, and I certainly, this is something that I I learned from Michael and Amy Port, you have to leave it all on the stage. And if you are so 100% in that moment telling the story, because you can't not tell the story, there's no room in your head for that voice that's back there yammering away. And so I spent probably nine of the last 12 months with one foot in the, in the canoe of speaking workshop and one foot in the speedboat of performing keynotes. Yeah. And it's hard to make the leap because it's really scary. But when I do allow myself to make that leap into the performing keynotes, the imposter syndrome voice is quiet because it's just, there's just no room for it. And it's really fun because you get to that point where you can see the audience member who's connecting with you, who's in, and you're, you're, you are gelling with them and you're vibing off of their energy and you're looking at them rather than looking at all the people that are doing weird things in the audience that just might be their resting bitch face or they're like, you're so into it that they're staring because they're focused and they're concentrating. So you get to pick like who you want and you get to vibe on their energy in a way that actually creates momentum for you. And so I'm, I'm really working hard now as, as I launch at the end of this month into year two as a speaker, um, as an actual paid speaker, into jumping into the speedboat of performing keynote so that I can quiet that voice. What do you do before you get up and speak that helps you to minimize that voice and to minimize those nerves? Because I think there's kind of this misconception that you know, the best speakers in the world, they don't get nervous. They just get up and they, yeah, they, they wing it or they just make it up. And that's absolutely not true that they spend hours and hours and hours practicing and rehearsing, going through it. But they, at the same time, they oftentimes feel those nerves and they feel those butterflies. And it's not for a lack of preparation. Oftentimes it's just because what they're doing matters and it's, it's valuable and it's important work. And so their body is reacting accordingly. So what do you do to help like any type of even pregame routine before you get up and speak primarily to help minimize those voices in the back? your head of the imposter syndrome who are saying, you know, who are you to be up there? Why should you get a mic? There's plenty of other people that are smarter than you on this topic. So why Laura? So what are you doing before you go speak? Yeah, well, I try not to remind myself that I was the one that they could afford. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's interesting. Years and years ago, when I was doing workshops and keynotes on behalf of my firm, I would, every time I would get sick, it would come out of one end or the other. I mean, it just, I was, I would get so nervous because I'd be in my head and I just, I would be so worried about saying something wrong or doing something wrong, such that like people that I knew in the industry would make fun of me. And they'd be, I had a guy who actually came up to me and brought me like a little care package of like Imodium and breath mints once. He's like, just in case you need it. <laughs> um, a friend of mine from Pittsburgh. And then one day it just stopped and I was fine. And years later, I look back on it. And what I realized was I finally had confidence that I knew my stuff. Yeah. That I might not be the world's greatest expert on this thing, but I knew about 90% more than about 80% of the people in the room. And there was reason that the people whose jobs depended on whether or not they picked good speakers and who picked me knew what I was talking about. So I just one day woke up and said, trust that you know your topic, trust that you have the substance, believe in yourself, right? Like, you know this, you were asked to be here for a reason. And what that came down to for me was a lot of homework. So I, in May, I spoke at an army base in Japan on behalf of American Dream U. And it was a volunteer gig. And, and my job was to help these soldiers who were transitioning out of the military think about how to continue their mission of service after they left active duty military. Mm-hmm. And I know everything there is to know about how to run for office and work in nonprofits and make social impact in the world. But I don't know anything about being in the military. Yeah. And I set up and spoke to 30 veterans everyone from Congressman Seth Moulton here from Massachusetts, all the way down to folks I know that just came out of being enlisted men. And I did my homework and I walked into that and I walked onto stage feeling really confident that I knew what I was talking about because I did my homework. So do I get nervous before I speak? Yeah, absolutely. But the way that I take care of the pre getting on stage nerves is to just know that I've done my homework and that I know where I'm going to go with the talk. So maybe I, I don't memorize speeches. I sort of memorize like general storylines and outlines. And then I know where I'm going. So if I don't nail this line exactly with this phrase, I don't lose my place. There are certain money lines that I need. And those are kind of like the coat hooks right, you know, right. along the way. <laughs> Tamsin Webster thing, the hooks where you, where you hang your coats. And I make sure I nail those, but I don't worry about getting, it's not a script. Right, right. So that allows me both to really live into the talk that I'm giving and really perform it, but also not worry about, do I have memorized enough? I mean, I smoked way too much pot in college to ever have to, you know, (laughs) memorize every single line of anything. I can't remember what I have for breakfast most days, but I just, I make sure that I do the homework ahead of time. I get to know who my audience is going to be. I get to know what they care about and I get to know what part of the story is going to move them. And that's the piece that I make sure that I work on. It feels like with speaking, as with a lot of things in life, that the first time you do it, it's an absolutely terrifying experience. And it feels like the train is coming off the track. The more you do it, it feels like the more confident that you get that you've done this before. You know how this is going to work. You know that I know whenever I say this line, I know that the audience is going to react this way. And I think you start to feel a little bit more empowered and a little bit more comfortable and confident. Have you found that to be the case for you? That the more you speak, the more comfortable you become? Yeah, I think it's for several reasons. I think you actually finally believe that the audience wants you to succeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when you believe that the audience is there for you, wanting you to succeed, then it becomes less scary. You know, they're not there waiting for you to mess up. And I think we spend so much of our lives worrying about messing up and feeling like there's going to be a boss or somebody who's going to point out what we've done wrong. That to just allow yourself to be there, knowing that everyone that audience is thinking, oh my God, I could never do it. Thank God she's doing it. And they really want you to succeed. 
allowing yourself to believe that is liberating right. is the first thing. And the second thing is that they don't know what you're planning on saying. Yeah. yeah. You know, so if you say rat instead of mouse, they're not like, oh, you said the wrong word. I mean, they just, they don't know. And if all of a sudden you're realizing in the moment that this storyline isn't working in this, with this audience, you can shift because you have a million stories to pull from. They don't know that you've changed it. They don't know if you misaligned. They don't know that you changed your story. They don't know that you skipped an entire section and that you do it at the end instead of the beginning. But if you can get out of the sort of fear part of your brain and turn on your active thinking so that you're driving while you're, while you're standing up there, you can bring it all back together in a way that makes sense for them. So I think that's a good thing. And then I think I've become a little bit less scared also because at the end of the day, if you're up there doing a thing that they love, it's because you're doing a thing that you love. Mm -hmm. And they can tell that you're so passionate about this thing. If you're talking about something, it's the common ground that you have with your audience. Right. They're there for a reason. You're there for a reason. And you've been brought in to talk about this thing that meets them because the conference organizer has told you this is the part that they need to have moved or because it's a subject matter area. But you have this common ground and you're so passionate about it. And people dig other people who are passionate about the same things. Right. Right. It's a great point that the audience wants you to succeed. They don't want you to fail. They, they don't want to see you bomb. They, If they're going to be taking time out of their day or their life to sit in a session, they want to learn something. They want to be engaged. They want to be entertained. They want to be moved in some way. So they're not looking for you to bomb. They're not looking for you to fail. And I think you make a great point too, just in terms of the, the presentation and the talk that it's, I always make the analogy, if, if you're singing a, a popular song or if you're singing the national anthem and you mess up the lyrics, everybody knows it. Like they, You can't hide from that. But if you mistell a story or if you tell points out of order, nobody knows the difference and the audience takes their cues from you. So if it's not a big deal to you, then it's not a big deal to them. And so if you all of a sudden you're in a, in a panic or a frenzy saying, well, oh, wait, I'm supposed to, supposed to tell this story now, but I, I told it wrong. Then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait, what? But if it's not a big deal to you, then you can keep moving on as if nothing happened and they would never know the difference. Yeah. I mean, think about the national anthem. It's actually a great analogy. There's a moment at the national anthem at any giant sporting event where the singer hits the really high note yeah. and we all cheer. Right. And right. it's not because they finished the song. They're not done. Right. We're just so proud of them that they hit this note that is so hard and we're all carried along with it. And we're so happy. It's like this, this great cathartic moment. Like the audience wants you to succeed. Yeah. They always want you to succeed. Yeah, very true. I'm curious from a business perspective, since you're talking about big topics, making change, leadership, and even for better or worse, motivation, how are you are you doing anything intentionally to differentiate yourself in a sea of other speakers who talk about similar things? Well, I'm not like a giant warm hug kind of person. I'm more of like a kick in the ass kind of person. So I think that there's a little bit of differentiation and I bring like powerhouse kick-ass woman feel to it as opposed to sort of soft and warm and warm, fuzzy. Yeah. Like I'm not a warm, fuzzy person, but I think I do it with like a little bit of a, a little, it's kind of like a kick in the ass with a hug. Yeah. But I think the live coaching that I'm doing has become a little bit of a differentiator because audiences really like to see it in practice, but they're really scared to do it themselves. Yeah. So that's been that's been sort of fun. I'm trying. I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, it's something that I'm learning because again, I'm still I'm still wrapping my mind around this idea of motivational speaker. But for me, I think it comes down to it being less about the individual and more about the change we want to make in the world. Mm -hmm. So if we want to make change towards X 
what is our personal responsibility to get there as opposed to just like empowerment. It's really more about the burden of privilege that so many of us have and don't see as a burden. We need to make change and it's up to us. Like there's nobody coming. Like we have to be the ones who do it. We have to be the ones who are, who, who are out there actively making the change in the world. And so when there are clients who, who want to get their audience members excited about the rest of what they have to teach them the rest of the day and understanding why they should take it seriously, having somebody like me coming in and talking about how we have to make these big changes and each one of us has our own personal leader that we have to pull to do it helps get them in the right mindset. Gotcha. Well, I'm curious also, what are you doing to actually get gigs? Because it sounds like a lot of what has happened so far for you has been things that have fallen in your lap or just kind of word of mouth. And when you're talking on a subject or topic like motivation or leadership, and there's a billion speakers who talk about that, and it's the type of topic that I mean, could be, you could argue that it's, you know, who do you speak to? I I speak to humans. I speak to people because it's a message that's for everybody. But at the same time, the counterpoint could be made that that try to speak to everybody. You're also speaking to nobody. So is there anything that you are trying to do to intentionally get gigs in a certain sector or industry or vertical to make sure that you're not trying to appeal to too broad or too wide of an audience? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's the hard, the biggest challenge that I've had in any of the speaker training or sort of business building that I've tried to do is answer that question, who are you for, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're for everybody, you're for nobody. It's, right. it's very hard. As I've spent the year speaking, I found that the cisgendered straight white males like me, but they don't really need that much help finding their leadership voice, right? It's sort of in their lap. They just walk in the door and people assume that, they, that they're leaders. It has turned out that my sweet spot are women and generally speaking, women in their 20s and 30s who are trying to figure out how to get their career going, or women who are a little bit later in their life and are trying to re-engineer and go back into the workforce, the LGBTQ, people of color, I mean, anybody who has been historically disenfranchised mm-hmm. or hushed tend to be people who react very emotionally to when I speak. So those are the ones who at the right point in the right talk, they are emotional. Sometimes they have tears in their eyes. They come up to me afterwards and they're like, hell yeah, I can do it. And so I've now started doing this thing where I I have them actually create a a map to their leadership voice. And we talk about what gives them power and what takes power away and how they're going to use that power and and what kind of leader they want to be, whether it's from behind, from the front, really loud, really quiet. And so that tends, that seems to be where my sweet spot is heading. So I've been spending a lot of time blogging about some of those things and using social media. I actually hired a firm to build a social media presence to get me in the right audiences and the right hashtags and all of that. In the website that I had built, there's a speaker reel and it talks, it has me talking a lot about power and not waiting until someone gives you permission, but going out and being bold and taking chances and making a difference in the world. And then I'm starting to apply and network people who are running conferences on women's leadership or, you know, people of color, incubators or, you know, anything that's aimed to getting more people who have been, you know, historically disenfranchised into the main arena. So for better or for worse, that seems to be where my world is. And I think that if I focus on that world, then I can find my way to broader stages because there are all the other people. I just spoke at the MGM Women's Leadership Conference in Las Vegas, and there was a straight white guy in the front row who was like talking back the entire time. Like I'd say, what gives you power? He was telling me what gave him power. I wanted to be like, this isn't for you. Rhetorical, rhetorical. (laughs) But you know what? More power to him, right? Like, great. We all, everybody needs, we all need to lock arms and work together to to change. So I'm starting to 
use social media and use my website to just basically tell people I'm an expert in this thing. Yeah. And it's amazing because if you tell people you're an expert in this thing, people believe you're an expert in this thing. It's yeah. a fascinating social dynamic. Right. Let's wrap up with this. Since you said kind of you became this accidental speaker and you've been at this full time for sounds like a little over a year, coming up on a year at this point. So there are plenty of people who are listening who are just a few steps behind you of getting the ball rolling, of trying to get the momentum, who are going, I don't know if this is worth it. I did it that one time, but it's hard to get any further gigs, or I don't feel like I'm that good, or I'm in my own head, or any number of other things that would throw people off track as they are building and growing their, their speaking business. So what would you say to that person right now who's one? wanting to do this, but just also uh, second guessing and feeling discouraged at times? Well, I would say first and foremost, no decision is permanent. So just because you decide you want to do it a few more times doesn't mean you suddenly are committed to this thing for the rest of your life. Right. Why not experiment? But in order to make it more enjoyable, I would say that there are a few things that I did some on purpose, but most by accident along the way in the last year. And I think one of them is I just started saying yes to lots of different stuff. And I learned that because I am mostly an introvert, I do like the stage with a thousand people or more in the audience better than the small sort of 15 person interaction. That's harder for me. I like to be able to, I like to be able to play that extrovert on stage and then go back into my code. I think to remind people that most public speakers are actually pretty introverted Very and so. it's okay. Like yep. if you go out and you do it and you do this talk and then you're exhausted, that's actually a good sign. It means you've left it all out there. That's the way it should be. But you think that you're a freak. And so the best thing anybody who's thinking about doing this, best thing anyone can do is to surround themselves with smarter people, people who have been doing this a lot, with people who are open to talking about both what's great and what's not great about it, who can sort of keep you company in your misery, but also celebrate your successes, and who just understand that moment of, I went out to Vegas, I had this big talk, it was the most I was ever paid, and I hired a film crew because I wanted to get some good footage to like augment my speaker reel. Mm -hmm. And then the film didn't work out and I have nothing. And not only do I not have the film, I lost the opportunity to get the film and, oh, that sucks. And to have somebody else to talk to about that, because at the end of the day, you're all by yourself on that stage and you're alone. And so to have people to just, am I crazy? Am I not crazy? Is this, you know, should I do this? Should I not do it? What really is my value? How much should I, I be asking? How do I figure out how to deal with this problem or that problem? I think just surrounding yourself with other people and just going out there and trying it, lots of different iterations before you make a decision is the best way to do it. Very true. Very well said. And it's, it's interesting, but also I found the same to be true that most speakers I know are very introverted. I'm very introverted myself and we enjoy people, but we also enjoy not being around people. And so <laughs> there's, a, there's a weird dynamic at play there. It is. Um, I recently listened to um, Glennon Doyle on Jonathan Fields podcast and she said a great line, which was, I love humanity, but humans are tricky. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that so true? Like, I love humanity. But if you ask me, I am not the person who walks in and works a room. Right, I right, right. I have one real conversation for hours with one person. And nobody believes it because if you make your living getting on stage and being out there, yeah. people think that you're just... You're supposed to be the life of the party. You're supposed to be the life of the party. I am very open on Facebook. People think they know me so well, but I'm super 100% open 
about 60% of my life. Yeah. And the yeah. rest of it is like deeply under lock and key. But yeah. I think a good offense is a good defense. And there's no better offense than being on stage where you're the only one who has the microphone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Well, Miss Laura, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate you uh, you sharing some of your, your story and journey with us. If people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where, where can we go? They can check out my speaker and author page at lauragassneraudding.com and all the rest of the writing and executive coaching and consulting I do is at limitlesspossibility.com. Beautiful. We will link up to those. So thank you so much for sharing the, the time with us today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Miss Laura from, again, lauragassneraudding.com. Great stuff from her. We appreciate her uh, taking the time to share her story and journey with us today. All right, boys and girls, that wraps up today's episode. We appreciate you listening. Appreciate you being here. Again, would you subscribe to the podcast? Maybe share it with someone. Reach out to someone and say, hey, I want you to listen to this episode. All right, let them know about this goodness that you have discovered. All right, don't keep it to yourself. Hide it under a bushel. No, that was random. Sorry. All right, my friends, we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.